Well, here's the, this, this is excellent. Thank you so much for your, your courage to, to give out answers. That was, that was fun. Uh, I think one of the key questions we all need to ask, alongside of, Allison, we appreciate you so much. Thank you so much to everyone. Um, alongside of the questions, who am I? How did I get here? Why am I here? Is the question, where is all this going? Right? What's the trajectory we're on? And this question sometimes pops up in different forms. What does the end look like? Is history going anywhere at all? If not, is life then just meaningless? Is life significant or not? When people die, is that it? Or do we keep going on? Where is all of this going? And everyone sees themselves, whether they can articulate it or not, as a part of a story. A story that has a beginning and a story that has an ending. And as Christians, we believe that God is orchestrating history. He's moving history towards a grand conclusion. One theologian has put it this way. He says, Christians are roadies, not wheelies. You know, a wheelie finds themselves going in a never-ending circle of repetition, ending in the same place they started. Whereas a roadie, they're going somewhere. They're moving forward through an ever-changing landscape to a destination. You see, God isn't bound by time, but he's moving all things in time to a goal, to an end. And a lot of people, they've written books, uh, they've uh, or written books, or they've created movies like World War Z, or they've created conspiracy theories as to how the world will end, when it will end. But for us, when we gather together as God's people, we're going to go to what God has revealed about the end. We're going to go to the author himself and what he's planned for the end. So this morning, we're going to find this insight in Daniel chapter 12. And it's always funny when you end up in this apocalyptic or this end times language, because many times this is what the outside world, many times when they come to the church, they think, oh, they're always talking about the end of the world. Um, But I think it's important to talk about where history is going. And although the title of the book, Daniel, carries Daniel's name, he's not the hero of this story. So it's not all about Daniel, but it's about the God of time, the God over time, and what he's already planned for the world to head towards. So while we're in Daniel 12 and we're answering this question, where is all this going? We're going to use three more questions as a guiding framework. We're going to ask one, how will the world end? Two, when will the world end? Yikes. And why does God tell us about the ending at all? Why does he even give us hints? Why does he give us clues? Why does he give us a picture? Now, I do want to make a quick disclaimer, though. Not all your questions about the future are going to be answered. (laughs) <laughs> so if you're, if you're getting ready to, you know, make stock investments or so on, that's not what we're doing this morning. Even Daniel says a few times in this chapter that he doesn't even understand what he just saw. So we walk very humbly into this passage this morning. But we can also find comfort in knowing that God knows how it's all going to end. We may step into mystery. We may step with humility. But we know that God knows how it's all going to end because he not only knows, but he's orchestrating it to come to this grand conclusion. So the first question we all want to know is how will the world end? Will it be an asteroid? Will it be the tilting of the earth off of its axis? Will it be global warming, nuclear warfare, zombies, you know? Um, Well, God doesn't get that specific for us, quite frankly. Um, But he does give us two two different images when portraying what this end of time will look like. The first is the end of the world will be with great pain, great turmoil. 
And then the end of the world will start with a new beginning altogether. So these two different images. And when Jesus is talking with his disciples, we find this in Matthew 24, in his discourse, his conversation on, on Olivet. He uses the metaphor of birth pains to capture both of these images. Because while you're in labor, there's this growing intensification and pain, right? And the end of the end of labor is the most painful time. But also the end of the end of labor is also a new beginning, a new life, brand new uh, life that comes into the world. Well, in Daniel chapter 12, let's look there. If you have your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible with you, we have some underneath these middle rows here under the chair. Um, so don't, don't hesitate to grab those and follow along. We see that the great pain that is talked about at the end of time is a period of great conflict. A period of great trouble is the word that's used. It'll be so intense that it'll be worse than any other atrocity we've ever seen in history. Chapter 12, verse 1 of Daniel, it reads, There shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. It'll be worse than the disease-ridden days of the Black Ages, it'll be, or the Dark Ages. It'll be worse than the systematic destruction of the Jews during the Holocaust. It'll be worse than the chaotic genocide of Rwanda. It's going to be a terrible and extreme moment. And Jesus, he gives us a lot of, of, of amplification here on what Daniel's been revealed. He says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, and describing this time of trouble as a great tribulation, suffering, persecution, such as not has been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, which is a way of saying God's people, those days will be cut short. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even God's people or the elect. You see, the end, it's going to be chaotic. Even angelic beings we see in Dan Daniel chapter 12, this angel Michael. I mean, who is this cat? I mean, he shows up. And he's saying he's fighting the prince of Persia. We see this behind the scenes. The curtain is pulled back in this angelic warfare that's going on across God's creation. And it's this cosmic battle for God's reign over his good world that comes to a head. It's this characteristic doomsday picture that we have here. Everything has come to its grand climax. And even the days have to be cut short because the suffering is so great. This is an intense period. But it's not just mere coincidence. It just doesn't happen because somebody wants to take over the next nation. This isn't just a dictator running rampant because he happens to have weapons of mass destruction or whatever. There is focused persecution and spiritual deception here. And similarly, as we've seen throughout history, Christians will not be excluded from this great pain. Um, Jesus, Christ's call to all who long to follow him is what? Pick up a cross and follow me. All who followed Jesus Christ were never promised an easy life, a life void of suffering, a life void of pain. But rather, he says in Mark chapter 10, and this is a comforting and challenging passage altogether. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, he says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. 
who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Whoa, Jesus. And in the age to come, eternal life. I mean, we can get excited about a new family. We can get excited about a new home. But persecutions, knowing that there's pain that still coexists as we follow Jesus in this time. Tertullian, he's an early church father of the first couple centuries um, after Christ uh, ascended into heaven. And the church is now continuing on the mission, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He, he sees so many Christians that are martyred for their faith, slaughtered in unreal ways. But then at the same time, he's seeing tons of other people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because of the testimony of these martyrs in the face of a, an extreme odds. And what does he say? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's planting the seeds of the gospel because they're seeing that this truth is so intense that people will die for it. What we see here in Scripture and in history is that just like in birth pains, the pain in life is going to get worse before it gets better. Evil will escalate before it's completely destroyed. And the church, the church will be a witness to the death of Christ through the persecution she endures as she has throughout history. She's going to be proclaiming the truth of the gospel despite opposition. But the end, you know, the end doesn't end there. Thank goodness. I mean, God promises that the world will end with a new beginning. Death and destruction won't have the final say. God will. And the end of Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it can be a little cryptic. You know, it's sometimes difficult uh, to understand. We can read it and naturally ask the question about the end of, cha- of verse 1. What does it mean that those whose name is found in the book will be delivered? What does deliverance look like? I mean, how, how, what can we hope in? What can we hope for in this promise? And I think verses 2 and 3 bring clarity to the cryptic element of this understanding of deliverance. Um, when reading scripture as we go throughout the Bible this year in our open here, uh, community-based desire and program, being in God's Word one chapter a day at least. Um, it's always helpful to read a verse within its context. It's like stepping in mid-conversation and thinking you've understood the past two hours of dialogue. No, you need to read the verse within its chapter, within its book. There's a conversation happening there. And I think verses 2 and 3 help us give some texture to this conversation, to what does it mean to be delivered. And here we see in this passage, it's an emphasis on resurrection. A new beginning will come. We read in verses 2 and 3, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, what we see here is that God gives a new beginning to all humankind. But this isn't a fresh start, if we can say that. It's a new beginning, but it's not a fresh start. It's not a reset button for everyone. The reality of our resurrected bodies continues down the trajectory that we were headed before we died. For some, that means the painstaking reality of existence, of shame and self-loathing forever. It's what Jesus calls the second death, time and again. 
But there will be some who experience life as it was meant to be, and beauty, and honor, and wholeness forever. Everlasting life is the language used here. And the wise, literally, the insightful and discerning ones, those who, who know where history is going and they choose the winning side, those, those who help guide others to see where history is going, the wise, they'll be seen as honored. Spectacles of brilliance like the stars in the sky at night. Here we see what deliverance looks like in, in that they are delivered from the second death by the grace of God. These wise men and women of faith, they stand now immovable, unshakable, no longer fearing persecution or pain, but glowing with the life that flows from God forever. This is the new beginning. You see, everyone exists forever, but not everyone lives forever. In our core beliefs as an evangelical free church of America, and some people have asked me, what on earth is an evangelical free church of America? Does that mean you guys are free of evangelicals? No, 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 no. Um, uh, and if you want more information, we've got pamphlets in there, in the, in the foyer there, the glass cube, the foyer there for, with more information on what that means. But one of the key statements in our statement of faith is this. We believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment, and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. And this can be a difficult statement to embrace. As scripture is pointing and uh, bolsters this statement, we see that God cares for us, and respects human beings with such great honor that he gives us the hope of existing forever in his joy and also having a weightiness to our decisions, therefore judgment. I mean, judgment and resurrection, these are good things because without both resurrection and judgment, our lives would be meaningless. They would be depressing, quite frankly. You know, if God did not gift human beings with everlasting existence, then our decisions would be ultimately meaningless. They would be like a vapor. You make them today, they're gone tomorrow. And this is, this is one picture in which we can see this. Imagine that you've worked your whole life on a novel. And you've spent every waking moment. It's probably one of the most beautiful novels ever written by, by humankind. You finish it, you receive accolades from international writers, but then after all is said and done, you die. That's it, darkness. Not even consciousness of darkness because you no longer exist. The earth eventually is consumed by the sun and no remnant of human history remains. You no longer exist. No one exists and the cosmos forget about you and your work. That's an option on how to see the end and where we're going. Does that energize you? I don't know, it doesn't energize me. Is that true? Is that the story you long for? Is that what you feel deep down to be true of our existence? You see, God, he's created us to be temporal beings, but not temporary beings. There's a key difference. We're in time, but we now exist forever. And one of Satan's greatest lies when we think of this cosmic battle that's waging now and will reach ahead at the end is that this world, this life is all that there is. This is it. It's a lie. And rather than the decisions we make today, 
having an ongoing impact in our life's everlasting journey and the journey of those around us, Satan tells us that this is it, so enjoy pleasure when pleasure provides itself. Avoid pain at like the plague, because this is it. There isn't anything on the other side. But that's not what God tells us. God has given us the gift of these weighty decisions, significance and meaning that goes on forever. But if we do exist forever, okay, this this puts us in a different conundrum. We ask a different question then. What's the best way to exist? And not just what's best for me, but best for everyone. We have to ask this question if we're being more than just self-absorbed. This is where the language of judgment comes in and is super valuable. Imagine if there was, let's take another imagination trip here. Imagine if there was no ultimate right except for that which feels right by those in power. Then genocide is right because there is might behind that decision. Who is to say what is right and wrong? Who is to judge? Who is superior enough to make decisions for all humankind? We all know how our feelings sway like the ocean waves. It's not a very sturdy ground to stand upon. Peace would be impossible because peace would be defined by a thousand different wants and a thousand different preferences that cannot coexist together. There must be a defined good and a defined right if there is ever to be order and peace. One thing we can agree on, and it's pretty easy to observe, is there's a major difference between death and life. We know when someone's breathing and we know when someone's not, for the most part. <laughs> Outside of terms of coma and certain other things, you know, the, it, interesting history, just rabbit trail for a second. History, interestingly enough, they, when they used to bury people before they had a lot of the technology they had, I, you probably even heard this, they used to bring a string, yeah, and it was attached to the, to the, to the, uh, to the uh, what's it called, when you're buried, what is it? Body. The body, but the body inside of the coffin, there it is. Uh, this is what happens when you go off of your notes. Yeah. Yeah, on the finger, and then there would be a bell that would ring. So if they woke up, the bell would ring because you didn't know if they were dead or not. Now we've got some pretty good technology in which we can tell before we put someone in the ground whether they're living or they're dead. But the harder thing, quite frankly, is to decide what actions today are life-giving and what actions today are life-taking, Right? There's a lot of debate on what's actually life-giving and what's life-taking. And here we have the God, the creator of the universe, the one who has breathed life into the world that he's created. He's the ultimate authority on the life that he's designed. And he's defined what is good and right such that even the most vulnerable among us can flourish. He's got this intimate knowledge as the creator. And so he's earned this authority this rightful place to define what is good, what is just. And it's when we're looking at the end of time that we're reminded that life today is meaningful. It's, it's this everlasting significance for good and for ill. And we see here that God affirms the meaning by bringing about the good for the wise and punishment for the wicked. One final imagination journey here. Imagine if you always knew the outcome of everything you started. You knew whether the proposal you made at work was going to be accepted or rejected. You knew whether that ask for a date was going to be accepted or rejected. You knew whether you were going to live till 80 or not. You'd work tirelessly if you knew the outcome would be successful, wouldn't you? You would push through all the pain to get the prize, 
While here we don't have all the details of the end, we know that God knows how it will all end. And he shows us that those who are his, those written in this book or, you know, recorded in his iPad, um, will experience everlasting life in the end. So the next question, after we ask, okay, how will the world end? It's going to be this, not only this pain, but this new beginning. Uh, we, we ask the next question that many times pops up is, when will the world end? You know, do we have a good timeline? And we love timelines because they help us feel in control. It's like, well, if I know this is happening January 2014, I can do this in October and I'll be cool in November. It gives us an opportunity to control. But here, even in Daniel 12, we see this dialogue with the angels here in verse 5 and following. And one of the angels asks in verse 6, he says, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? How long? When? And if you'd just seen what Daniel had seen, you'd be asking this question too. I mean, this is a pretty intense vision. And you'd be wondering, when will the end come? The answer he receives is really vague. It's, it's after two times and a half a time, the holy people will no longer have power. And Daniel responds in verse 8, I heard, but I do not understand what that means. <laughs> and I'm right there with him. You know, as a pastor, sometimes I get this question, you know, when is the world going to end? And I always say, I, I don't know. I don't know. Many times people think we've got it figured out uh, on, on this timeline piece, but we don't. And there are plenty who've tried to say that they did. You know, here are two recent examples Um, A gentleman by the name of Michael Drosnan, the author of the Bible Code, he found hidden messages in the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible, that predicted that a comet would crash into the earth in 2012 and annihilate all life. Well, it didn't happen. So you're sitting here this morning. Uh, Another one that was very popular was the Mayan calendar. Remember all that? You know, I remember seeing a Far Side cartoon where you've got these two Mayans and they're talking and he goes, oh man, I ran out of room. And then the other guy says, well, that's going to freak somebody out one day. You know, they, they anticipated that the end of the world would happen during the winter solstice of 2012. And it didn't happen. There are hundreds of other examples given where they try to give the exact time, the exact date, make sure you're ready on this hour at this place. And they've all been wrong so far, all of them. No one knows when the world will end, not Daniel, not the angels. Even Jesus said while he was here on earth that he didn't know the time of the hour. And although God doesn't give us an exact date, he does give us some hints here and in other parts of the Bible such that we can know something of the sequence of events when it is near. Not when it is now, but when it is near. And the study, and, and I just, just to give us a helpful language uh, basis here and some definitions. Sometimes the word eschatology is used. It's a fancy way of saying the study of the end of history. That's, yeah, so we're going to use that more that phrase every once in a while. And it's been the topic of contention in churches for centuries. I mean, it's separated people. You know, you separate now of what's going to happen then. It's like, well, I don't know if that's really the goal there. So it's important for us as we walk into this eschatology, the study of the end of history, We, one, walk with confidence in one thing, that God's victory is sure. We see that throughout Scripture, that when the end comes, God is victorious, and he's on top. But we walk with humility, 
when it comes to timelines. We walk with humility when we start talking about dates. We, we walk with humility when we start talking about how close it is. And let's, I just want to review an overarching timeline of the world. It's not that big. So, you know, that seems very, that's like three semesters in college. Let's, let's o- briefly overview the, uh, the overarching timeline of history to help give us a context for the end. First, we have creation. Uh, creation, where, where God creates this good world out of the overflow of his good heart. This is the way the world ought to have been. But then we step into the fall, where human beings who are made to represent God long to rather replace God and his garden and in his good world, and they invite disorder and brokenness into perfection. And we live in this world. It's the is. It's, it is where we are living and breathing. Then we step into this larger scale of redemption. You see, all of God's redemptive work in history then leads up to God becoming human in Jesus Christ at the first advent, which is a way of saying his first coming, his first coming. And it's here that Jesus Christ took all the brokenness of the world upon himself at the cross and then rose again on the third day to begin this resurrection, this restoration of all of creation so that through our faith in him, we can experience life here, today, and now. But we also look forward to a day when the new heavens and new earth, when all what, what God has begun in Jesus Christ, he will bring to completion and you and me and the rest of creation. This new heavens and new earth, creation as it was meant to be and someday will be. Right now, we're kind of in the time between. You see this already, which is this purplish hue, and this not yet, which is this yellowish hue, and you see this overlapping that's happening. That's where we are in the timeline, before the second advent, before Jesus's second coming. But we can still experience new life today, a taste of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like because of the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. But we're not completely restored, are we? We still experience pain, Our joints still ache in the morning. We still get in arguments with our spouses. You know, we're not perfect people, but we experience new life and can experience the joy of knowing God and knowing Him now in our lives. And so we sing, we pray, we cry, come Lord Jesus, come and reign in this world and make the new heavens and new earth. Come and reign here on earth And judge all that is evil and broken and make right this broken world. Well, here's the thing. Every generation has said, God is coming in our generation. But one thing is certain. The end is closer now today than it was yesterday. The end is closer in this present moment than it was in the 1900s. We're moving forward. We're not wheelies. We're roadies, remember? And we're moving closer to God's great redemption and restoration of all of creation. But in light of the fact that God doesn't give us the date or the time, we do ask, why does God tell us about the ending anyway? If he's not setting us up to kind of sell all of our possessions for Thursday, January 23rd, you know, 2015, you know, that's not my prediction, please. Um, don't, don't tweet that or something. Um, I might get fired. Um, uh, but we do ask this question. I mean, why does God tell us about the ending anyway, right? 
Why does he let us in on this? And the theologian, George Ladd, he sums it up, I think, really well. He says, Jesus' eschatological teaching, remember, a teaching on the end of history, this eschatological teaching, like the prophets, is fundamentally ethical in its character and purpose. He's never interested in the future for its own sake, but speaks of the future because of its impact on the present. It's not so that we can just look forward and say, oh, that's neat. But it changes our lives here and now. In essence, this is what God's telling us. He's telling us about the end so that we live wisely today. In Daniel 12, there's this language of wisdom that keeps percolating. And you wonder why, right? Why all this language of wisdom? It's because wise people, when shown the end, they're going to choose the better path, right? When they're shown the end, they're going to endure the journey with realism. And when they're shown the end, they won't lose hope in a better ending that's coming. If you look at at Daniel 12 at verses 10 and 13, Daniel wants to ask more questions. He wants to pry more in what the future will look like, what it'll be like, when it's coming. But God tells him in verse 10, Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act or continue to act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise will understand. And in verse 13, he cuts Daniel off right there and he says, But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. End of the book of Daniel, right there. See, God knows, he knows how it will all end. And he's been gracious enough to give us a glimpse, a picture, into where it's going. And there are only two options two paths that are heading in opposite directions. Are you sure you've chosen the better path? The decisions you make today, they matter. They have significance because we are everlasting beings. And they set the trajectory of what your existence will look like here on. What direction is your life heading towards? Everlasting life or everlasting shame? Jesus says of himself, what? I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Very exclusive. This is the path to everlasting life, but through Jesus Christ alone, the path of the gospel. And it's not too late to change directions. That's the beauty of God giving us a picture of the end now, to give us the option to show us what could be if we choose to follow Jesus. So the wise person chooses the better path, but they also endure the journey with realism. Now, you may know God knows how it will all end, and you get that, but you still feel forgotten. Sometimes our head and our heart doesn't always link up the way we'd like it to. Some of you have seen some rough stuff. You've witnessed loved ones who've gone through excruciating pain. You've watched the corrupt succeed as they backstab and as they used unjust practices to gain uh, riches. You've wrestled through why life is so hard. And we come back to the point that we can't forget that when we follow Jesus, we're not excluded from pain. Remember the road Christ has called us to walk is in the shape of a cross. Yeah, we have a new family. Yeah, we experience a new home even here now when we gather together at various times throughout the week. But, but, with persecutions, and we still have hardships in our lives. Life is sometimes still very difficult. The wise person, though, 
knowing that they live in this time between the already and the not yet, this overlapping, they endure the journey with realism. It's not an optimism such that, you know, why is suffering happening in my life? I thought it was all going to be okay once I got to know Jesus. But it's not a pessimism either that it's all going to be dark and dank, you know? It's a realism. We don't walk around with rose-colored glasses. And, and pain doesn't catch us off guard the same way it used to. But we take one day at a time, weeping with those who weep, knowing that God is with us even now, working all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, even if that good doesn't show up, isn't realized until the new beginning has come. The good may not be realized while we spend our time here on this earth. It may not come until the new heavens and the new earth. That God has realized all of this good for us then. And so we hold and we cling and endure the journey with realism. Finally, the wise hope in the better ending. There are some of you this morning, you're just entering a really difficult season and you can't see a light at the end of the tunnel. You feel hopeless, quite frankly, and you feel so broken down. You're wondering what the next step's going to be. God knows how it's going to end. He's there with you in it. And the wise person will cling. Once we've been given this glimpse, clings to the hope of the better ending that's coming. Now, you may be sitting there this morning wondering how you can muster the, the strength to choose the path of everlasting life. You may be wondering how you can gather the power to endure the journey with realism. You may be wondering how you can even have the audacity to hope in the better ending. It's not because we know the what. It's not because we know the when. Those details can be foggy at best, or they can be downright scary at worst when we realize the great pain to which this world is heading. But ultimately, it's because we know the who that's behind it all. You see, it's precisely because God planned before time to redeem and restore what would be lost that we can rest in his goodness. It is precisely because God stepped into time in Jesus Christ that we can rest that he is sovereign over time to bring about its grand conclusion. It's precisely because Jesus Christ died our death once and for all time that we can have hope of a better ending. The wise will bow their knee to Jesus while there still is time. Accept that he took our shame and our contempt upon himself or we can choose to walk alone, away from God forever. These are the two paths that are laid before us. We may not know when the world will end, but you can know and have confidence on where you're going. So will you follow Jesus?